Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and healthcare with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. You're listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm Jim Lavoulis, in for David Gastina. And joining us now is our political observer, Alan Chartalk. Alan, obviously a wild week in New York state politics. Of course, Governor Andrew Cuomo in office since 2011, announcing that he will resign August 24th. Your initial reaction to that? We knew it would come, at least we thought it would, because he had nowheres to run. He didn't have a single friend left. He didn't have anybody that he could rely on. Nobody, and I mean nobody, was speaking for him. So he had to do something in order to uh, get out from this incredible pressure. And the pressure was mounting. Just think about it, Jim. Um, The idea that the district attorneys were now getting involved in this and the potential for criminal action was there. I remember very well when Elliot Spitzer, uh, who I very much liked, but who got into a lot of trouble for running uh, a prostitute across the state lines, as I remember it, um, was in trouble. He just got out. He made it easy for himself. Now he's an outstanding businessman in New York City. Cuomo uh, didn't do that. He was holding on for dear life, thinking, I suspect, that it would be all right eventually and he could outweigh this thing. Into all of this comes the New York State Assembly, and they decide amongst them, and this means Democrats, that they were going to impeach the guy. Now, impeachment in Albany is nothing like impeachment in Washington, because impeachment in Washington means first the House of Representatives impeaches you, and then you go to this United States Senate, and they have to convict you. What happens in the Albany version, the New York State Constitution, is you get impeached, and you have to step aside. And the lieutenant governor steps in. And that is a very different process until the trial comes up in the Senate. And since the president of the New York State Senate had said that she was for basically uh, his resigning and getting out, there was no doubt about whether he would be uh, found guilty in that trial, even though all of the state Supreme Court judges who Cuomo had appointed were going to be members of the Senate panel, which would be considering the impeachment. So if you're following me, he was out of cards. There was nothing that he could do. He got up on Tuesday and he said, you know, um, I'm going to tell you why I'm not guilty, blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden, he floored all of us by saying, but for the reason of keeping New York State going, I'm going to resign. I'm going to step aside. And that, of course, was an extraordinary uh, move. And it got everybody uh, to the point that you couldn't turn on the news, no matter what was going on in the United States, without hearing about Andrew Cuomo's resignation. Uh, And that's where we stand. And as it's been framed, it's quite a fall from grace since his uh, high marks that he received during the COVID-19 pandemic. But taking into account all his years uh, as governor and before as an attorney general, 
What's in your mind the Andrew Cuomo legacy so far? Well, he did a lot of good things. When you think about his attitude on guns and other things, he really did some remarkable things. Nevertheless, as everybody has said by now, that doesn't excuse bad behavior when it comes to the way in which he treated these women. And then there were other issues also, things like the nursing home situation in which a lot of people died and the New York State uh, people were saying that there were fewer deaths than there actually were. Uh, this All this stuff added up, and people were in the legislature were angry, and some of them were rivals. Some of them just thought he had been there too long. But in any case, he was going to go as a result of this. He had lots of things that he had accomplished. But, you know, you can't say it's okay to treat women badly, but even though you've accomplished something. And so Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul is set to become governor of New York State, the 57th governor of New York State, and the first female governor on August 24th. What are your expectations for her taking on the role? Well, she's going to take on the role, and then obviously, and she hinted at this, she's going to run for a full term after she serves out Andrew Cuomo's final time. There, a lot of people are expecting that she's going to have some competition when it comes to a primary. It wouldn't be the first time. What she's got going for her is that she will be the first woman governor of New York State. That's pretty powerful. On the other hand, if Letitia James, uh, who, after all, wrote the report that got Cuomo into all of this trouble, ends up entering the primary against Hochul, it may well be uh, that she'll beat her. So by no means is this over. You know, Jim, there's another thing. I often kid and say, written in invisible ink into the New York State Constitution is the provision that in order to be elected governor, if you're a Democrat, you have to come from the five boroughs of New York City or the surrounding suburbs. So this is going to be an interesting fight. There will be some men and others who will be deterred from running against this first woman governor. Uh, On the other hand, you know, in politics, uh, there's an awful lot of passion when it comes to self-advancement. And I don't think we're by any means going to see the end of this. You may remember that Andrew Cuomo himself made sure that Mr. Patterson, his predecessor, was primaried. And uh, that's where it is. We knew that Cuomo would win. That's why it all happened that way. But uh, he wasn't above doing that. And I suspect we're going to see other people who are going to want to be governor. That's our political observer, Alan Shartok. You're listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm Jim Lavoulis, in for David Gestina. Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, in her first remarks since Governor Cuomo announced that he's resigning, said she intends to be a fighter for New York. After the state attorney general found Cuomo sexually harassed 11 women and that key staff members were complicit in some retaliatory actions against an accuser, Hochul acknowledged that there will be turnover in what is now a tainted administration. Capitol correspondent Karen DeWitt reports. 
Hochul says she believes that it was appropriate for Cuomo to step down. She says she spoke to the governor for the first time in over six months, and he pledged his full support for a smooth transition. Hochul says she's ready to take over as the state's first female governor on August 24th. I spoke with Governor Cuomo yesterday, and he pledged his full support for a smooth transition. And I thanked him for his service to our state. Regarding his decision to step down, I believe it is appropriate and in the best interest of the state of New York. And while it was not expected, it is a day for which I am prepared. I've already spoken with Senate Majority Leader Andre Stewart-Cousins, Speaker Carl Heasty, labor, business, faith leaders, other state elected officials, as well as our tri-state governors. I look forward to working with each and every one of them and all of you to build on the progress that we've already started. Over the next two weeks, I will continue meetings with current and potential cabinet officials. I'll build out my senior staff, and I'll do what I've always done. I will travel the state to meet New Yorkers, to listen to them, to assure them that I've got their backs. And I will take their concerns and bring them back to our state capitol and work with our partners in every level of government to come to solutions. People will soon learn that my style is to listen first, then take decisive action. So in 13 days, I will officially become the 57th governor of the state of New York. And shortly thereafter, I look forward to delivering an address to all New Yorkers to lay out my vision for the great state of New York. But make no mistake, our work has already begun. And I know this year and a half has been so challenging for families and businesses across our state. And sometimes it doesn't feel like it's getting any easier. The Delta variant is still raging, and it's going to take all of us to defeat it. Hochul says her style as the chief executive will be to listen first and then take decisive action, a contrast to the top-down, hard-charging style that Cuomo employs. But she says that doesn't mean she'll be complacent. And the promise I make to all New Yorkers, right here and right now, I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Hochul says she intends to continue with many of the administration's key policies and programs, including the $15 minimum wage and paid family leave and economic development projects. But she says one tradition that will not continue is the workplace atmosphere of bullying and intimidation that was outlined in the AG's report. And I'm going to stand right here at the end of my term, whenever it ends. No one will ever describe my administration is a toxic work environment. Hochul was hesitant to outline a new agenda, saying she is not yet governor for 13 days. She also would not reveal who she might pick as her lieutenant governor, saying she's considering a number of individuals. But she hinted that they might come from the downstate area to balance Hochul's Buffalo origins. She says there will be turnover in the administration and that several top aides to Cuomo named in the attorney general's report as having acted unethically will not keep their jobs.
Hochul will inherit a number of big challenges, including rising COVID-19 rates due to the Delta variant and the state's stagnating vaccination rate. She would not rule out reissuing a state of emergency to deal with the pandemic or issue mask mandates, saying all options are on the table. But she says she intends to work first to convince more New Yorkers to get the vaccine. I think the answer is very simple. More people being vaccinated is our key out of this. And I'm going to be working with the communities where the rates are higher, the infection and the vaccination rates are lower, and to come up with a very strategic approach to target that and make sure we overcome the hesitation and worries, but also to make it more widely available. Even when Hochul becomes governor, Cuomo is not likely to fade from the news cycle anytime soon. He still faces a criminal complaint from accuser Brittany Camisso, and the Albany County Sheriff is continuing to investigate that claim. There's an ongoing federal investigation into whether he and top aides concealed the true number of nursing home deaths during the COVID pandemic. And the state assembly has not curtailed an impeachment impeachment inquiry, even though the governor is leaving. Hochul, asked about whether impeachment should go forward, says she won't dictate to the legislature how they should conduct their business. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. As we've heard, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says he will resign in the face of sexual harassment allegations from multiple women following a damning report from the state's attorney general and with an impeachment inquiry growing. But some Democrats have claimed the third-term governor was unfairly forced from office. Research by Syracuse University professor Rebecca Ortiz looks at how political affiliations can impact one's view of sexual harassment allegations. I spoke with Ortiz, an assistant professor at the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications, before Cuomo announced his resignation. When the Me Me Too movement started, um, we saw a lot of political leaders, politicians, political candidates, uh, part of the the discussion around sexual assault and allegations being posed against some of these people, mostly powerful men. And, of course, we saw that then-candidate Donald Trump was being accused of sexual assault and then a a number of other Republican and Democratic leaders. And so I was curious because I started to look at how the public was responding to these allegations. And really mostly anecdotally, because I was just doing some observations of social media, my friends, you know, colleagues, that kind of thing, I started to notice this um, bias, really, is what ultimately I found in the studies, is that there's this bias towards believing and giving more credibility to allegations that are made against political leaders that are of an opposing party, meaning if you're a Democrat, you would be potentially more likely to believe an allegation against a Republican candidate, or if you're a Republican, a Democratic candidate. And so I was curious, because this idea of of blame uh, or reducing the the belief in an allegation um, because it's somebody that is or is not like you is not a totally new finding. So it's under this idea of what's called social identity threat or um, outgroup discrimination is another another term. And we are, our identities are made up of a lot of different things. So one of the you know our identities can be related to our gender, our race, ways in which that we 
congregate in social groups and, and, and identify ourselves. And one of the biggest ways right now, especially, I think we could argue that we identify is based upon our political identities, especially if we are somebody who is politically active and really engaged in that identity. So I was curious to look at, because this idea of social identity threat, where when somebody from your group, especially somebody who represents and is powerful in your group, is accused of doing something bad, it can often feel like a threat to your own identity. It can feel like, not that you're, you're being accused of it, but that a piece of you is, is part of this, these allegations. And so you can engage in bias where you're less likely to believe that that could be possible. Because really, you don't want to believe that someone like you could do that behavior. But then it's also, if somebody who's not like me, sort of the out group, the other group, it, it helps kind of reinforce that my identity is the right one if they're accused. And so I'm more likely to believe. It gets a little, it can get a little hairy, but the basic idea is that we are all trying to protect our egos. And that's been looked at in a lot of different ways. How it hasn't been examined is within the context of sexual assault and political identity. And so I wanted to run some studies to see, okay, does this play out in these particular behaviors and in this particular type of identity? And so what I found, I did an experiment, I did a survey, and I looked to see what were the relationships between identity, either being Republican or Democrat, and I did look at independence as well, but I'm going to focus on the Democrat-Republican piece, is does your identity, your political party affiliation, um, does it pose a bias in how you perceive allegations made against political leaders who are or are not part of your party? And I found that, just as was hypothesized, that you are more likely to believe the allegations um, made against a political candidate that is the opposing party, whereas you're less likely to believe them when they're of your party. And that the more you identify with your political affiliation, so the more that I, that I feel that being a Republican or a Democrat is a part of my identity, and the more that I report feeling kind of defensive when somebody from that party is accused of something, the more likely I'm also to engage in what's called rate myth acceptance. Um, and rate myth acceptance is this idea that I'm willing to put, at least part of it is I'm willing to put blame or at least partial responsibility on the victim. I'm, I'm questioning these allegations and I'm thinking, well, maybe that victim shouldn't have done this thing, or maybe that person shouldn't have been there, or that person egged them on. It's a way of misdirecting the responsibility onto the victim. And so people, what I found is that the more that people identify with their party, the more willing they are to do that. Yeah, no, the, one of the most interesting aspects uh, of this study that I, I found was that as it relates to the sexual assault perceptions, an individual's attitude tends to align more closely with their political affiliation even than their own gender identity. Yeah. Uh, that was particularly surprising to me. Any insight as to why, you know, the, the political draw kind of overrules the gender identity there. Yeah, you, what you're speaking to is political party, no pun intended, trumps gender identity in this case. Now, I think there's a lot of complex things, or maybe not complex, but there's a lot of things going on. Um, what we see is, so what I found is, in terms of this, this rate myth acceptance, this, this, this willingness to place responsibility on the victim, it is highest among Republican men 
followed by Republican women, then Democratic men, then Democratic women. So Democratic women are least likely to engage in these beliefs, whereas Republican men are most likely. So men are more likely to believe in these, have these beliefs than women, but that we generally see that Republican women and men align closer together and Democratic women and men align closer together. And so what we're seeing is that political uh, party plays a more powerful role here in that what, what is happening is, is sexual assault and beliefs around sexual assault is aligning more ideologically with your political identity than it is with your gender. Even though we still see that men are more likely to believe in these beliefs than women, we're seeing that there's something ideologically about how people align with their political party that plays a role in how they see sexual assault victims. I, I can't say for certain. I think there's still a lot more that needs to be explored about why this is. But we see a lot of gender role um, attitude differences between Republicans and Democrats in that we see and we see the Democratic Party doing a lot more um, advocating for for gender equality and women's rights um, and reproductive health and these kinds of things. So it sort of makes sense that they would be more aligning with with supporting the victim and, and not blaming the victim. So I think we're seeing some of that align, but it was kind of surprising to a certain degree that political party played such a stronger impact than gender did. And I want to get your insight on some other numbers. Uh, a poll conducted by Marist College hours after the Attorney General's report on Governor Andrew Cuomo came out found 59% of New Yorkers said they believe the governor should step down, including 52% of Democrats, 44% of participants believe the governor did something illegal, and only 7% said he did nothing wrong. What do those numbers say to you in regards to your previous research? Well, the first thing I, well, the first thing I note is that we're about, so if we look at the Democratic numbers specifically, so registered Democrats, I think it was about 52%, right, it said that they, they want him to resign, which is really about 50-50. So what we're looking at is we're looking at a good portion of Democrats who are still not sure that the, he should resign. They're still arguably on his side, despite this independent report coming out, giving some pretty credible um, information that he did, in fact, do these things that he is denying to have done. So even though 52 percent is like, wow, there's, there's a lot of Democrats who are calling for his resignation, you could also look at it on the other side and see there's a lot that are not. And then you compare that number to registered Republicans, which I think it was like it was in the 70s who are saying that he should resign. That That's not surprising, right, to see such a higher number among Republicans than Democrats. So I found it really interesting that there actually are still a number of Democrats who are supporting him and, and not calling for him to resign. And then I'm also not surprised to see that there are so many more Republicans than Democrats calling for that resignation. I think that aligns a bit with what I found. And do you think, uh, in the case of Governor Cuomo, that the existence of a legal report coming from an office led by a fellow Democrat um, is leading to, you know, more or less alignment between Democrats and Republicans when it comes to the accusations? Well, that's, you know, that's a great point, and that's, that's what makes this so complex. So if I'm a Democrat and I'm looking to other Democrats in power to help me make decisions about this. I have one who's been accused of sexual harassment, and then I have many other who are saying he needs to resign. So who do I align with? Who do I, 
who who in power in my group in my my identity group who do I listen to and it, I think that's why you're seeing possibly this sort of 50-50 split of registered democrats is I'm not sure who that is representing my group I should listen to and there there's there's probably a lot of cognitive dissonance happening among democrats right now in in thinking well I want to support my party I believe you know in in continuing um, many of the the policies and work that's being done uh, in the Democratic Party, but who do I actually listen to? So, and I think that's actually been a really um, tough struggle that the Democratic Party has had around sexual assault allegations made, especially under the Me Too movement. In, we saw this with Al Franken. There was kind of sort of a, a group of people who of Democrats, I mean, I mean Democrat Democratic politicians, and then you know Democratic voters. Um, we're, we're seeing that there, there, there is sort of this, we want to support, you know, we're, we're advocates for victims, and we believe in the importance of supporting victims. Um, but when it's one of our own who's accused of this, where do we draw the line? I mean, we, we want to be, we, there's, there's just a lot of um, kind of meeting in the middle, like trying to figure out, well, who do you support? And I think we're seeing that again here. It's like, do I support the governor who's my leader, or do I support the, um, the, the the other Democratic politicians who are calling for his resignation. And I wonder if you've noticed in your research or other research out there that if there's any sort of other loyalties that would be similar uh, to political party in this instance, you know, say a member of a your favorite team, you know, your favorite actor, is there anything that, you know, compares to this political loyalty trend that we're seeing in regards to sexual assault perception? Well, what's fascinating is you can find a, almost anything. Anything that is an important part of your identity could be activated in this case. And actually, that's where I want to continue this research is to, to explore not just political affiliation and, and gender to a, to a certain degree as well, but also looking at, you know, contextually, how does this change if the the person being accused is female and the victim is male, these kinds of things. But I think you can place a lot of different identities in that space and you might and you would likely see some of the same results. So like you said, if it's somebody who is a athlete for my favorite team or a religious leader, we you know, we, we we've seen that somewhat anecdotally too that if it's somebody of a religion that I, my identity is really connected to, it's, it's hard. It's difficult to, to kind of um, keep both of those ideas in my head that, that, I, that here's somebody in power that represents something that's really dear to me. How do, I, how do I navigate that? So you could place a lot of different things in that space, and I think you would, in the research before this would, would suggest as well that you would see some similar results as I found in my studies. Rebecca Ortiz is an assistant professor at the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. Copies are available by calling 1-800-323-9262. That number again is 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2133. 
or just listen at WAMC.org or by downloading our podcast. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York state government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jim Lavoulis in for David Gustino.